Um, so this actually was not an easy talk. It was unexpected. I, it's not, it wasn't an easy talk for me to construct because I realized when Pam and I um, um, thought about this theme, this overarching theme that we would like around um, uh, the archetype of the Buddha's life, what we were asking you to do is something slightly different because usually in sitting groups, dharma talks, retreats, um, part of the repetition, part of the offering of the teachings is for you to internalize these teachings, internalize the dharma. And in this retreat, we're actually asking you to do one more thing. We're actually asking you to internalize the Buddhist life. To make the connections between your life and his life. And so in order for us to do that, I actually had to go through my own process of how do I internalize this path? How do I, how do I get in touch with that place that the Buddha is inside me. Because that's actually what we're inviting you to do. To, um, to really explore what part of your life is also the Buddha. So as, as Pam was so beautifully unfolding around the calling, um, Sometimes the, the messages that come to us, the calling is not just a, a single event. The calling actually happens over and over and over again. And um, it often becomes stronger and stronger until there's that threshold, that tipping point of actually um, being enough energy to push you into what's called the Great Departure. Sometimes, and that's the the language of the archetype, but in the language of the Dharma, it's going forth. And so in the Majjhima Nikaya, there is a description of this in the Buddha's life. And I'm going to be piecing different texts together because, um, uh, because both the Buddha's story at this time, pre-awakening, and also um, his uh, wife's life is not in a linear sequence in, in the text. So I'm actually piecing several texts together. And so in the Majjhima actually before the four messengers that, that Pam was describing, um, uh, he, he says, before my awakening, when I was still the unawakened bodhisattva, spasattva, the thought occurred to me the household life is crowded, a dusty road. Life gone forth is the open air. It isn't easy living in a home to lead the holy life that is totally perfect, totally pure, a polished shell. What if I, having shaved off my hair and beard, putting on the robes of ochre, were to go forth from the home life into homelessness? So this was something that he was thinking about long before 
um, he actually went forth. And there's a story when he was even a, a child at the age of seven. When Siddhartha was seven, the king took him to the plowing festival. However, his attendants left him unattended underneath the shade of a tree, for they too were busy watching the symbolic plowing in which the Sakya chief plows with a golden ornamented plow. So the Sakya chief was, was um, Suddhodana, which is the Buddha's father. Siddhartha, his name before he was the Buddha, underneath the shade of the tree, sits in a yogic posture and attains the first of the four stages of meditation. In later life, he narrates this incident to one of his disciples. I know that while my father was plowing, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, aloof from the pleasures of the senses, aloof from the unskilled states of mind, entering the first meditation, which is accompanied by the initial thought, by initial thought is born of aloofness and is rapturous and joyful. And while abiding therein, I thought, could this be the way to awakening at the age of seven? So even in the, um, the myth of the Buddha's life, there are multiple calls that cascade into the actual moment he decides to depart. And just, you know, when I was um, rereading that, 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 that um, story of the plowing fields, um, what came to my mind in terms of reflecting back on my own life and my own process is um, when I was a kid, I used to uh, what my parents called daydream. And I would look into the sky and I would do this flip. I would look into the sky and think about all the worlds that were up there and on my back. And then I would flip on my stomach and I would look down into the ground and think about all the worlds that were down there. And I would keep going back and forth in this kind of, you know, flip-flop way. And, you know, there's a way in which we can dismiss that kind of reverie as daydreaming or whatever, but you know, in the it was really an existential exercise for me when I was a kid, and really to honor that place where where you have had those calls, and to honor because that's also part of your path. Siddhartha was now nearly thirty, and the moment of his final decision was imminent. His father, King Suddhodana, had already begun preparations for the crowning of his heir in seven days. Siddhartha was to be enthroned. Suddhodana took every precaution to prevent his son's flight, so the king even knew intuitively that this was a risk. And even mobilized all of the Sakya people capable of bearing arms to guard the palace exits so that Siddhartha couldn't leave. At this time also, Siddhartha's son, Rahula, was born. It is an obligation which has come to me, said Siddhartha, when he heard of his firstborn and only child. 
meaning that there was another tie to all of those already holding him back. And so he, there were multiple times in which he tried to go forth and couldn't because of the pull of the, of the householder obligations. So just continuing in a different text. So it was impossible for him to leave that night. The next night was full moon, and when everything was quiet and still, Siddhartha again stood by the open window. The mysterious voices were again irresistible. The devas in the sky and all the people on the earth were urging him to his mission. He could resist his vocation no longer. The moonlight streaming over the marble floor showed him Yasodhara sleeping soundly in their golden bed. He drew near and gazing into her exquisite face asked himself, how can I leave her? Why should my innocent one suffer? He returned to the window and the persistent voices seemed louder than ever. His love for Yasodhara impelled him to deafen his ears to their crying. He heard the voices of the devas saying, O Siddhartha, have you forgotten your mission? Did you not promise to find the great law which will give this sorrow, sick, and death-stricken world nirvana and peace? He looked towards the city and thought, it was quiet with sleep. But no, the people's cry was heart-rending, calling out to him, come out of the palace and go and seek and find the law that will save us from aging, sickness, and death. Waste no time. Backwards and forwards he paced. His soul was bent on the voices and he longed to leave the palace. The, the, the going forth was not a simple task as, as, as sometimes is, is described. He didn't just go forth. It was a struggle even to disengage. Yasodhara was sound asleep. Their newborn babe had his little head on his mother's right arm and the room was bathed in moonlight. Hurriedly, he came back to the bed and knelt at its foot and whispered, My poor, innocent Yasodhara, I am leaving you tonight. Will you think me unkind? Yasodhara, love has united us. The bond is strong. It will never break. My poor wife, I can foresee your suffering. It's really important to, to, to really acknowledge that his practice was going to have a huge impact on his family. Be brave, my good wife. Your sacrifice, her letting go, means so much to the people. If I stay here, I shall not be able to find the law which will save the world from suffering. Forgive me. This is my farewell to all of whom I love dearly to all whom I hold near and dear to my heart. It is the law of peace that I am going to find, and if I succeed, we shall meet again. 
And so what is said is, is that as he went forth from the palace, he still had to deal with the guards that were on the palace gates. And it, and it is said that 33 gods descended from the sky and put all of Kapilavatsu's, which is the, the kingdom that he lived in, inhabitants into such a profound sleep that no sound whatsoever would waken them. And to be even safer, they held the horse's hooves in their hands to soften the pounding on the ground and helped him jump over the um, palace walls. Mythologically, it's about allies. It's that we are supported in our practice, which can be really difficult. And so um, Pam will actually unpack and unfold this as well tomorrow night. According to the traditional reckoning, he was then 29 years old, and this was the beginning of, their, of his six-year quest and struggle for, from awakening, for awakening. From his experience of the four messengers, Siddhartha embarked on the great departure, the, go, the going forth. So if you will... Uh, be patient with me, I'm going to read the other side of the story because I think that it's really important to bring in Yasudhara's experience too. Because when we go on retreat, people practice with us. Our families are actually in practice with us. Our friends. And when you go back into the world, your practice will affect everyone around you. And this is the going back and forth, that the Buddha also did. And so when Yasodhara found out that the Buddha had gone forth, of course she was grief-stricken. The mythology is is that um, all of the um, infinite numbers of previous lives that they had lived, they had always lived together, even as, as animals. So some of the references are um, being born as, as deer or birds. Or, so, um, so the first piece is verse and the second piece is prose. Her lord gone to become a Buddha, to seek nirvana, Yasodhara falls on her bed and breaks into sobs. You left resolved your mind set on being a Buddha, I too made a firm resolve to always be your wife. We made our joint resolves and you gave me your hand. Why then did you leave today without a word? We were first born in the animal world as deer. Since that life, we too have never been apart. Every samsaric birth, I was always your consort. Why then in this life did you go, leaving me alone? My eyes are full, my garments are wet, tears fall. As my husband, nectar-like, I recall. Abandoning our son, I know he has now left. Is there another woman in this world that is so bereft? Did I do wrong to bear you a handsome son? Did I fall short in beauty, goodness, strength? Was a disrespectful act unwittingly done? Or did you dream of being a Buddha conquering death? You can feel her pain. 
I never kept a secret from you ever. I never let you be troubled, not me, Yasodhara. I, once so blessed, weep inconsolably. A woman of a thousand virtues, I am your Yasodhara. Your cause was Buddhahood. I sensed the signs. Yet, I came with you as your wife every time. So she knew. She knew what his path was. And yet she still came with him every time. Now, let meditation never leave my mind. Just notice the shift in that one phrase. So it was from this grief, and now it begins to shift. My Lord, on a bed of forest flowers, are you sleeping? Your tender, lovely feet, are they now hurting? Are there sufficient gods around you guarding? Dear husband, where are you roaming? Whatever, my th- whatever faults I may have had, my Lord, I cooked and fed you, you who now wander far away in the forest. May the blessings of the gods be with my Lord. May the forest fruits turn sweet for you. May men surround you as bees do a flower. May the sun dim his scorching rays for you. May gods create shelters for you as you walk. My heavy grief I'll bear, however hard. Like the air around me, I will only think of my Lord to become an arhant unswervingly. I'll try till I set my eyes on him again. So there's a lot of patriarchal language. There's a lot of gender, you know, cultural um, issues historically. But underneath all of that, that layering is the fact that she's turning towards her path of awakening. That for both the Buddha and Yasodhara, the path to freedom is actually through the suffering, not around it. And sometimes, as this story um, articulates, I think, the path to the end of suffering is actually through more of it, not less. And, you know, all of that is kind of a dramatic, has that dramatic flavoring that, that, um, that comes with the exaggerations of an archetypal model. But we all have departures in our life. Some of them we've planned, that we have left. Some of them are thrust on us without any kind of notice. We have chosen to depart, and sometimes we're the ones left behind. And each is an opportunity, a path towards freedom. Each can be that. So each time we go into retreat, there's a departure. There's a departure from the the routine condition way that we're living our lives. Each time we actually practice, even if it's not in retreat, each time we practice, there's a possibility of departure from our habitual conditioning. 
what is our usual habitual conditioning? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And one definition of awakening, one definition of enlightenment, is the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So as we depart from them, we begin to gain insight. So not not unlike Siddhartha, just making the effort to come here, to go forth into retreat itself. I am sure you had to make arrangements. You had to make arrangements at your place of work or your family or your loved ones, your friends, um, your, your household, your garden, pets, whatever it is that you had to take care of. And it takes a, it takes a while. Usually for me to um, plan a retreat of seven to ten, ten days, it takes me a year to, to schedule into my my time. Not just scheduling, but to, to prepare. And really, this is the, um, the wholesomeness and, the, and the, um, the effort that you make in your practice towards this departure. When I... Um, Uh, ordained in Thailand for six months. It was about five or six years ago. And in order to create that time, that six months away, and also to convince my partner and my parents that it was okay to do that, it actually took me five years from the initial thought, the initial calling, to getting on the plane. And when I got on the plane... So the, the monastery that I, that I ordained in was in northern, in northern Thailand. And um, part of their form is for you to practice there for three weeks to show the sincerity of your practice before they actually um, offer you the robes. And I remember two weeks into that three-week retreat, uh, my partner Stephen calls and, and said, you better talk to your mother. And so I had had the conversation with my parents around ordaining because the formal way in Thailand to ordain is that you need the permission of your parents, uh, which is an interesting process because, you know, at 50, I had not asked for permission to do anything in a really long time. So I had thought I had gone through all of that. And so I get this call. You better talk to your mother. And sure enough, somehow she forgot that she gave me permission. <laughs> and she was really upset because, you know, I was a, she thought I was just talking about it as an idea. And, and this is how sticky the departure, this, this is where I, I felt that pull that, that the Buddha felt um, in our relationships. And I actually had to let go of the retreat in the moment and just be with her and be with her grief or her fear or whatever it was that was going on in her mind. Also, part of the departure was actually letting go of of, um, the symbols 
of my primary relationship. So I actually had to take off the wedding ring. And that was actually a big deal because it, it really symbolized something to us. And so we created a ritual and, and, um, and I could feel, you know, as I took it off, you know, the, the grief that also Stephen was going to go through when I was going to be secluded in the monastery. And it's not as if in, in the gay world this is a common activity to leave your partner for six months in order to become a monk. So there was not so much support for him in the larger culture either. This is how your practice affects everyone. Everyone around you, when you leave and when you come back. It is part of our mindfulness to be sensitive to all of those aspects. This great departure is stepping across the divide between the known and the unknown. It's the departure is what separates the things that we sort of are in control of because that's what we know, what to do, and what we don't know, and what is out there. So, um, Pam knows better than I, but in Zen there is this practice of don't know mind. And uh, the, um, uh, the famous passage um, is, um, Feian was going on pilgrimage. Dizong said, where are you going? Feian said, around on pilgrimage. Dizong said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? Feian said, I don't know. Dizong said, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is actually the heart of practice. Being able to walk in the groundlessness, the shifting aspects of our lives. And the departure invites us into becoming a little bit more comfortable with this place of not knowing how it's going to unfold in the next moment. Just allowing the moments to arise. Just meeting it very gently, letting it go and watching the next moment come. When I uh, came into practice about 20 years ago, um, I was, I think this is an accurate description, tortured. I was a tortured soul. I, um, uh, uh, I was in early recovery from alcohol and drugs. Um, I had many issues of internalized racism and homophobia that I had just not dealt with and the self-hatred. Um, I had a relationship that was in shambles and I had absolutely no purpose in my livelihood or career. And the question was, why am I here? What is the purpose of this life? 
I couldn't figure it out. And when I couldn't figure it out, I just spun into this depression. And I just kept spinning. And I couldn't, you know, I was in therapy, and it was just, it didn't feel as if it was moving anywhere. So I can't remember whether, I don't think it was my first retreat, but it was somewhere in my early retreat practice. And um, it's a, it was up in Oregon, and I was doing walking meditation. And this question was just ruminating over and over. It was somewhat obsessive. Why am I here? What is, this, what is the meaning of this life? In a way, it was a calling, but it was also, it felt like a dead end. And I said to myself, you know, there was this redwood tree, and I'm sure I'm gonna, I would be able to find it again if I, if I was up there. And I just stopped in front of this redwood tree, and I said, you know, I can't figure out what the purpose of my life is, so I'm going to figure out what the purpose of this living being is. Because it's so much simpler, you know? It doesn't, doesn't have all of the brain cells that I do. And so I, I went through all of the possible purpose or meanings that this tree could have for living beings or the, you know, the... Um, the um, um, the interconnection of the oxygen and the carbon dioxide that goes that it that it gives off and takes in, or the the home for the other birds, or the the fact that it you know can be um, used for uh, shelter and other materials. And my mind imploded because I couldn't I couldn't think of all of the meanings or purposes of this what I regarded to be simpler being than I. And the question just dropped away. It was like, I didn't, like if I couldn't figure it out for this, who am I to even figure out what the meaning of this life is? And the question dropped away. And I actually have never revisited it. And that's a sense of freedom. That's a sense of freedom from, from being caught in that obsessive search of certainty, of wanting to know. Because the search for meaning can be so weary, especially if the answer is not, not apparent. So each of us will learn how to walk through this uncertainty with, with whatever issues. That issue may not be arising for you. But it's the possibility of just meeting each moment for what it is and not knowing, because I could have never predicted that that was what was going to settle without sort of years of therapy. We don't actually learn from what we know. We actually learn from what we don't know. And so when we only live what we know, it is this narrow bandwidth. It's pretty limiting. 
And as soon as you drop that and live in the not knowing, there are so many more possibilities available to us. Charles Dubose, uh, a French literature critic, says, the important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice or let go what you are for what we could become. Letting go of our ideas about what our life is in order to directly experience the life that's being lived. So in some of my groups I've said, the practice is about getting out of the way. Getting the cognitive, intellectual mind out of the way of our life and letting the life be lived. Just noticing how is this life wanting to be served or lived. And I just you know, want to acknowledge that there's, there's a lot of fear of the unknown sometimes. I know that when I did my first long retreats of months or two months, this, this fear of the unknown really actually, um, uh, the subconscious is so powerful because I began having dreams of dying and death. And, and, um, and in a way, it was a death of, it was a departure. It was, um, uh, it was a, tra- it, it, the, the retreats were a transformation, which means a death of how things, of how I used to do things in a rebirth into a new way of seeing. And, but it just came up in dreams all the time. And I remember being so um, caught in them that I wrote my last letter to Stephen uh, at the beginning of a three-month retreat because it was so, it felt so real. I never sent it. But. So we start... We start this letting go. We start, um, we start this departure, this renunciation of how things have been. Small, by just letting go of how we think the breath should be and just meeting the breath for what it is. Letting go of how we think this retreat should go for us, even if we sat over and over again. Because each retreat is different, each sitting is different, each breath is different, each walking period is different, each teacher is different. Letting go of how we think things should be. So a spiritual seeker climbs a really you know, steep mountain in search of wisdom teachings. And, and um, uh, he meets the teacher living in this idyllic, peaceful stillness at, uh, at the top of the mountain in a cave. And the seeker asks the teacher, Noble one, please teach me the secret of happiness. And the teacher replies, Simplicity, self-restraint, Renunciation. Simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. 
And then the seeker pauses and asks one, one more question. Is there anyone else I can speak to up here? <laughs> we have attachments to even what we think freedom is. Which is why the story is so funny, because when we don't like the answers or when we don't want the answers, we search for the answers that we want, as opposed to question the fact that we're attached to certain outcomes or certain answers. And this is why letting go is so important, this practice of renunciation. Renunciation has this formal quality to it. But it's the same thing as letting go. Because letting go is actually the antidote of the second noble truth, right? So the first noble truth is the fact that there is suffering. The second noble truth is that suffering is caused by clinging or attachment. And letting go is that dissolution. It's that, you know, it's that uh, healing of. The Dhammapada says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of what is in between, transcending the things of time. With your mind free in every direction, you will not return to birth, aging, illness, and death. And again, we've been practicing this in, in small ways to build that capacity to let go more and more. So when we took the precepts at the beginning of the retreat, being aware of the harm caused by all of those actions, whether it's violence or theft or sexual misconduct or speech or intoxicants. We refrain, we let go of those actions that will create harm. And in the retreat, you're invited to live with what is given to us and no more the rooms that were given to us, the roommates that were given to us, the food that's offered. And for this brief moment in time, we let go of all of those things that we are so attached to, you know, our electronics, our cell phones, or whatever it is. And we get to feel, what is it like to live this life more simply? What is the life that's being lived as opposed to some virtual one out there. Part of this departure Part of this letting go is also letting go of the obstacles that may arise in our practice. And so classically, they're called the hindrances. And they come up over and over again, no matter how many retreats that, that we sit. And so for those of you who have sat many retreats, you will be familiar with them. And, and for those of you who are um, relatively new to the practice, 
the five hindrances are um, sense desire from uh, and and the forms of greed and wanting that comes from it. The opposite of sense desire, which is uh, the, the craving, the opposite of that is the aversion, is the ill will, is the is the pushing away of. The third and fourth hindrances are also related. The third one is sleepiness. I don't know of a single practitioner, including myself, that hasn't experienced what's called sloth and torpor. And the opposite, which is restlessness. And the restlessness and the anxiety and the worry can be manifested physically in the body, or it could be an agitation in the mind. And so you have a sense of that, that when the mind is really agitated or anxious, it's hard for the body to stay still. And likewise, so there's a relationship between body and mind. And the fifth one is skeptical doubt. It's doubting your capacity to do this. So those are energies as opposed to um, judgments. So it's really easy to judge your practice when these hindrances come up. But they've actually come up for thousands of years. So the instructions around, for example, sleepiness, sloth, and torpor are the exact same instructions that the Buddha gave to his chief disciple, Moggallana, who... Um, was one of his right-hand people. And his, the, the nature of his practice before he became awake was that he fell asleep over and over again. So the classic instructions of um, the, first, the first aspect is, is to reflect on how the Dharma has changed your life. The goodness that the, the practice has offered to you, and that might brighten the mind for you to stay awake. Physically, to shake your ears and limbs, to to create circulation in the body. Wash your eyes with water and look around in all directions to sort of bring in the spaciousness. Um, Pam mentioned this, that that standing is is a good practice because it's harder to uh, fall asleep when you're standing. The actual traditional instruction was to sit at the edge of a well. But we don't have any wells here. So standing is, is, is the uh, substitute. Walking meditation creates energy that you can bring into the sitting practice. And finally, if none of those work, it could be because the body is tired. And so to take a rest. But as you take a rest, and as you awake, you should quickly rise and not indulge in the enjoyment of lying down, reclining, or sleeping. So it's not the overindulgence, but it's the permission to, if you need to. So just to, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the hindrances um, as we go through the week. 
Um, but it's, it's, you know, we so often are not actually with the moment as it is. We actually push away things we don't like, so that's the aversion, that's the ill will. And we want more of the things that are pleasant, so that's the greed. It happens really frequently. And just to notice, because the awareness of the hindrance, and this is the power of the awareness practice, when you are aware of a hindrance, you're not lost in it. just trying to edit given the time that we have. Part of um, letting go can be supported by just noticing how you have let go in the past. Because all of us have there are things that we no longer engage with or need or just notice those things that have naturally fallen away. You know, the classic example is, is um, from the Peanuts cartoon strip, Linus's um, security blanket. You know, all of us have had transitional objects in our life that we no longer are attached to. Notice how those transitional objects have fallen away. Because really, everything in your life is a transitional object. Everything will fall away. And just being aware that, you know, just like with that, with that security blanket, which was an external soothing object, but when you actually are able to self-soothe internally, you don't need the object anymore. Mindfulness actually allows us that soothing. Suzuki Roshi said that true renunciation is not the giving up of things, but noticing that things go away. And that really is pointing to the teaching of impermanence and how things change constantly, how the breath changes. But we're really resistant to this teaching because we really um, are resistant to pleasant things ending and yet we keep hoping how unpleasant things will end really quickly. So there's a subtle attachment even there. Before my father passed um, last year, um, he, he had a cancer diagnosis and um, uh, two years before he actually passed he went through a period in which we thought we almost lost him. He was, he was fading really quickly. He went into the hospital and um, they actually administered a drug. And so he went through that whole process of letting go and you, you could see just him fading and shutting down and not eating and 
and they gave him one uh, um, uh, drug. Um, it actually was thalidomide, which was surprising to me. But it stopped the cancer, and it revived him. And he recovered, not completely, but to a certain baseline of functioning. And he was so pissed off. <laughs> he was so pissed off because he had let go. He had let. He was ready to go. And what I saw, and as I was watching his process, and how he lived for another two years before he actually passed away, he was attached to letting go. And I think that is actually gave, you know, and he wasn't conscious of it. And so it actually created this energy that he actually lived longer. Because he didn't go on, he refused any further medication after that. But the attachments can be so subtle. And when he did let go, when he, you know, sort of got to that place of... uh, um, not needing it to be one way or the other, it had this, you know, I'm not sure he would use this word, but it had this grace of just peacefulness, fading. I, was, I had the privilege of being with him at his last breath. And, and it, it just sort of reinforced my faith in these teachings that it is about the breath. It is about each moment. And that being with that last breath, you know, his was extremely peaceful. I know that not everybody's is, and I don't even know if mine will be, but, but he actually, you know, showed me the possibility of a peaceful death. And that is a huge teaching that he was able to offer. But unless we're aware of these things, unless we bring our mindfulness instead of, you know, death is so cloaked in our culture, we turn away from it. We don't have the possibility of changing our relationship to it. The power of awareness is that it gives us a choice. What is going to lead to more suffering and what is going to lead to less? When we're not aware, we don't have that choice. So we actually can't change anything in our life without this awareness practice. So what places in your life are you being called into departure? What changes are happening that will be a shift from the known of how things are to the unknown of how things will be? You know, it may be in a relationship, it may be a job, it may be part of your spiritual practice in terms of where you're going. Can we live into that unknown quality of our life? Can we get out of the way so that our life can be fully experienced?
As a young 26-year-old African-American man, John Francis witnessed a tanker collision and oil spill in San Francisco Bay in 1971. It was then he gave up the use of all motorized vehicles and began to walk and to work towards transforming the oil, petroleum, enmeshed economy that we have. Several months later, fed up with the arguments with his decision to walk, he took a vow of silence, which lasted 17 years. During that time, he founded Planet Walk, which is a nonprofit environmental awareness organization. And he received his Bachelor of Sciences, a master's degree, and a doctorate in land resources all during the silence. He started speaking again on Earth Day 1990, and the very next day he was struck by a car. He refused to ride to the hospital in the ambulance. He insisted on walking to the hospital instead. For 22 years, he walked over 22,000 miles, including treks across all of North America, much of South America, hoping to inspire others to change the petroleum-based economy. In 2000, he was named one of six United Nations ambassadors at large. And on uh, Earth Day 2005, he began a new project, retracing his steps in order to um, develop relationships with indigenous and native peoples and uh, the environmental movement because there are so many communities that have been excluded from from, uh, the environmental conservation movement. And he was wanting to bring them together. Dr. Francis's walking practice and his practice of silence led him into a livelihood which creates less suffering in the world. He transformed himself, but also the world around us. That his practice is not just an internal experience, but it has impact on many beings as our practice does, as each of our practices does. And he says, and I'll leave you with this, it is important to leave, meaning depart, let go. It is important to leave the security of who we are to go to the place of who we are becoming, that place of unknown. I encourage you to let yourself out of any prison you feel yourself to be in. So what security can you depart from? And where is the place of your becoming? Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.